Hello, Energy Radio listeners. On behalf of myself, Matt, and Lisa, and the rest of our Energy Radio family, we'd like to thank you all for joining us this year in what was an exciting season of fantastic episodes. We'd like to thank each of our amazing guests for sharing their stories and doing their part to contribute to building a more functional world. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. The first clip is taken from Energy Radio episode 63, Wire, Women and Renewable Energy, featuring Joanne Ossaway, the Business Development Manager with ABB and the CEO of Wire, Women in Renewable Energy. Joanne talks about how she came up with the idea for Wire and some of her experience of being a female in a mostly male-dominated industry. Let's talk a little bit about the wire piece. Why did you start that? Uh, Women in Renewable Energy, again, just for our listeners, that's what that wire stands for. Why did you start that in the first place? Was it to try to bring more women into the space or what was the thought process there? It was certainly that. Uh, I think that being the only female always boots on the ground, whether it was at a construction sites, at open houses, uh, even at my company, there really was no females or underrepresented groups working in the sector. Um, when I started out, it was also very brand new. Um, it was a very an emerging technology. It was a very new technology that we were all really learning. So, I mean, engineer or not engineer, all of us were at the starting line, having no idea how to build these wind commercial wind farms. And, you know, I kept lamenting and lamenting to my husband, there's no women, there's no women and underrepresented groups. And he's like, well, stop talking about it, do something about it. So that's what I did, I did something about it. And uh, even in 2021, I wish that the numbers were a lot, the volume, I, I just wish that there would be more women joining this wonderful space um, and underrepresented groups. I think that we still have to have these awkward conversations, unfortunately. Um, I do feel that when I did start um, WIRE and launched it in 2013, I was getting really derogatory comments from people within our industry. You know, even at uh, trade shows, we would have space for our booze. People would come up and say, well, do I need to put on a wig or a skirt to join? Um, I received comments that I was segregating the industry instead of bringing it, you know, everyone together. And that actually infuriated me, those comments. Yeah. So actually, I ended up, uh, honestly, th- that's the reason why wires spread so far, because again, with the continuous, uh, you know, success is also of people wanting to join, um, having a great board of directors, having an amazing advisory committee and subcommittees and so forth. You know, that really drove me uh, to continue on on this journey. And, um, you know, I think that it's been such a blessing to be able to be part of the WIRE community, WIRE family. You know, I don't, um, my husband and I, we have no pets, no plants, no kids. So WIRE, um, I like to <laughs> No <call>. plants. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> so this is my baby, my daughter, WIRE. So she's now nine and uh, we're in every single province in Canada, including the territories. Uh, we have now expanded international, internationally, so we have WIRE Azerbaijan, Turkey, Georgia, Jordan, UAE, and we are now opening up WIRE Italy and Africa, so we're super, super excited on that continuous expansion. I'd like to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, women working in male-dominated sectors and just maybe get a little bit of an understanding how the experience has been for you. You've shared some of that, you know, already to some degree, obviously, with with starting up WIRE. 
um, and and maybe any other hardships you've experienced along the way. So, you know, maybe, you, you know, separate from wire, since you've already touched on it, you know, when you were in the wind development side, you know, now at ABB, you know, what have you experienced through your, the course of your career in that regard? Just as any of us have felt obstacles and hardships within our careers, um, I certainly have had you know, not the most pleasant at times um, situation, you know, again, being at construction sites, being the only female has mm-hmm. not always been the most pleasant, um, has not always been, you know, the most welcoming, let's put it that way, you right. know, it's a woman doing in this space, like what can, you know, she's not fit enough, she's not, you know, strong enough, uh, you know, comments such as those as well. Um, I think that also, you know, one of the things that I love about ABB is that they are so welcoming and they really put their money where their mouth is when it comes to diversity, equity and inclusion. And uh, they're so proud of the fact that I am part of WIRE, that I'm the president and CEO. They they really support and champion me. So I think that that's really key. Um, And I really, again, I can't... um, thank them enough for bringing me on as well, because again, they've not only brought me on, but they brought wire on in a lot of ways. So it's been great. Uh, Some of the other hardships, I mean, you know, again, derogatory comments have always flown. And I think that uh, some of them have been really inappropriate. I think that the differences between 2012 and 2021 is that we're now masking. We're now, you know, these comments are behind the curtain. They're not as transparent. They're still there, but they're not as transparent as they were previously. Our next clip is taken from Energy Radio episode 64, Energizing Society. Matt and Lisa talked to three team members from Siemens Energy, project manager Carl Armand, regional sales manager Samuel Massette, region manager of power generation sales Bill Stefurak about the current state of the energy industry and the abundance of changes coming down the pipe, as well as some of their new technologies. Particularly in, in the power gen world, how does the how are you hearing from clients in terms of or developers or, or how these projects are maturing and where does where does hydrogen get layered into that? Like is it is it just interest? Are you seeing stuff happen? Curious what you're seeing on the front lines. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's multifaceted. Um, and, and again, I'm kind of more zeroed in on the power generation. I think society in general is aware that, you know, that there's a climate concern. Uh, you know, you, 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 everybody's aware of it to some degree. And I think what we're finding in the power industry is that we're, we're still in the education phase for the most part. And, and that takes uh, a fair amount of effort. I can't have a conversation today about a gas turbine without introducing a hydrogen discussion. Mm-hmm. And, and, and part of that is... You know, as Carl mentioned, it's an evolving business, and we're 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 learning things, we're developing things. That there needs to be a funding to 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 promote the development because you know when you you start entering new technologies, they're not always cost effective. You know, as we look at solar panels and and wind turbines, you know, th- those were a lot of that was motivated by um, government incentives, you know, societal incentives, whether it's tax bait, uh, tax rebates, and now we're looking at you know potentially Biden dollars coming to to promote hydrogen. But, but the industry is looking at it going, okay, what is this? How do we figure it out? How do we implement it? And, and that's basically where we are because one of the issues, you know, with the gas turbines got a life cycle of, you know, 25, 30 years, if not more. 
And and if you have an immediate need today for power, which a lot of people do, um, and, and you have a limited amount of resources, i.e. money, uh, and you're looking at buying a gas turbine, what we're trying to do is future-proof some of these assets so they don't end up being stranded. So a lot of people are saying, oh, if I buy a gas turbine today, what's the future look like? Do I have to walk away from this when we all go carbon-free, or can I convert it in co-fire? And I think Carl kind of hit on that, that as an industry, Siemens is, is leading the way and saying, look, you know, if you buy a, a, a gas turbine today that's fired on, on, on the, you know, typical natural gas, we are going to the direction we're going to be able to fire that on hydrogen, either in a mixture or 100 percent. And and Bill, from from uh, like currently, your your turbines can fire, you know, what percentage of, of hydrogen? And is there a D rate associated that with that? And do you expect that D rate to improve if there is one? Um, I think the answer is it depends. And, and Carl and, and Sam can talk on this. It depends on the frame, um, you know, because we have different combustion technologies. Um, and so, yes, we do have it's available on our website of how much co-firing is available today. Um, and the 100 percent in some cases isn't achievable just yet. There's some technology challenges with the flame propagation speeds that both Sam and uh, Carl can talk to that you have concerns. And then you have concerns in the whole infrastructure that supports the fuel delivery to the gas turbine combustion area. So there's other things that get involved. Um, Sam, you want to jump in? It, it, yeah, sure. I guess going back to your previous point about hydrogen as a market, I'd say from my standpoint, covering both Canada and the US, it's it's you know somewhat different between the two countries. I think there's substantial amount of interest with blue hydrogen. Um, specifically in Alberta. Um, mm -hmm. The difference in Canada being you have the carbon tax. Now, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on that, and you guys, I'm sure, know a lot more than me, but with the carbon tax, there, there becomes a clear economic driver to move towards hydrogen because of the reduction in, obviously, CO2 by burning high levels of hydrogen um, versus the U.S., where it's, it's, you know, you don't have that same economic argument it's mm -hmm. more of a, a driver based on, you know, public perception, um, you know, companies wanting to be appear to be green. And then with the new infrastructure bill, there's a large part of that which will provide government funding for hydrogen projects. Um, so there is, the, you know, a difference between the two countries. In terms of Siemens Energy's um, specific capabilities, we're working towards the goal of um, having gas turbines running on 100 percent hydrogen by 2030. Um, we actually uh, became the first manufacturer to receive certification for being hydrogen ready um, mm. or having a hydrogen ready power plant concept um, from TUV. And they're the um, global provider of testing, inspection and certification. Uh, and then in addition to that, we've got a, a zero emissions testing facility, which we're um, developing in, in Finnsbung in Sweden. And again, the goal is to have that operational on 100% hydrogen by 2030. So there's a lot of work being done in terms of development. I mean, it, you know, across the board, it, it really starts with you know, doing atmospheric rig testing all the way up to high pressure to full engine testing. And as that, as that develops, we'll certainly know more in terms of, you know, exactly what performance will be and exactly what, you know, hydrogen levels are, are, are possible working towards that 2030 goal. Our next clip taken from Energy Radio episode 65, Buzz Solutions. In this episode, Matt and Lisa talk to Caitlin Albertoli, the CEO and co-founder of Buzz Solutions, about how they are safeguarding the world's energy infrastructure with an AI-powered platform detecting faults in power line inspections. 
Caitlin shares some insight into how their software works and about how they use drones and helicopters in the inspection process. So my co-founder and I, we launched Buzz Solutions from a launchpad style course at Stanford where you uh, spend the first three weeks building your entire go-to-market strategy, your second three weeks uh, building your five-year financial modeling, and your last three weeks of the course, you put together your entire pitch deck. And every three weeks, you pitch to a different panel of industry experts and venture capitalists. And it was really exciting for us because we were originally exploring the wind market, and we were looking at what was happening with drone inspections in the wind market at that time. But after doing some market research and after speaking with people in the industry, it was pretty clear that there was a, a really big burning need for our solution in the power space. And so we had advisors who said, have you, have you seen what's happening with, with drone inspections in power? And so we leveraged the Stanford Alumni Network to interview about 35 different power utilities in a few week period of time. And they all had the exact same story that they were starting to do a lot more with drone inspections and with high zoom, high resolution cameras for their infrastructure inspections of all of their power lines, but yet the entire process of analyzing their data was still manual. They had mm -hmm. linemen, engineers, field technicians spending eight hours a day for months on end just analyzing all this data. And we said, you know, there has to be a better way to solve this problem. And that's where we came up with Buzz Solutions. So, so Caitlin, talk to us a little bit about, like, how, how does that work? So, like, if we take, a, take us back to... You get a client, so utility client, you may or may not be using some of their existing drone footage. I don't know that they've maybe captured over the years. You've got your own drones or something that's, I guess, you know, looking at a lot of that infrastructure. But how does the AI piece fit into it from an automatic perspective? Like, like what, what do the, how, how does a client get that information and, and what's the, what's the real benefit there? Absolutely. So we don't touch any of the data collection piece. We leave that to the utilities and the service providers who do all of the data collection. And so uh -huh. we just take in all of the imagery uh, that's been collected from these utilities. And now we're working on new sensor data as well, a visual sensor data. But we take in all of the imagery and utilities can upload it to our software platform. And then uh, they're able to process it using our algorithms, and our algorithms then will have will draw automatically will draw uh, boxes on all of the different faults that it detects in an image. So mm -hmm. it'll tell you if there's a broken insulator, or if there's rusting on a component, or if there's um, rot on a on a wood tower um, or a wood pole. And so we're able to provide all of these different faults and failure mode detections, as, as they're called, based off the visual imagery that they've collected. So and you, to, to, so my son got a uh, a drone for 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 Christmas, and we've we uh, he's been too busy playing with other toys. We haven't unboxed it, but eventually we'll get out there and fly. So you don't do any of that. You're not doing any of that. Your value add starts after that data has been collected. Did, did I hear that right, Kayla? Yes, that's correct. We work with partners and we work with utilities themselves who are either doing in-house inspections or they contract out that, that data mm -hmm. collection piece. We really just want to be the, the central brain or the one-stop shop for analyzing that data mm -hmm. to provide you with the most actionable insights from that inspection data. 
And Caitlin, is there information that you need to collect from a utility, like to kind of get started on this? Like, do you, are you interested to, to understand what the age of the current infrastructure is or when certain maintenance kind of things have been carried out just so you have kind of a starting point or do you just assess the system as a whole? And then as you find faults, like that information is provided to the client. So tower names and uh, the uh, coordinates, location coordinates for all of the structures is really important for us so that we can then map all of the we can then map all of the imagery that's collected to each of its structures and then we can provide the results there so that's really what's the most important what we're doing now is looking at as we continue to do these these inspections and as we continue to work with utilities then we're uh, building all of this data to be able to track assets over time and that's mm -hmm. something that's so important is now that so many utilities are able to do more frequent drone inspections and are able to get visual data of their lines they're creating this huge data portfolio of all of the of all of their structures over a over a time sequence and that's where the value of ai comes in as well and the ability to map all of the structures um, is so important our next clip is taken from energy radio episode 68 women and power Lisa Katz and Steve Quinlan talked to Charlene Gatcha, the founder and CEO of Women in Power, an organization that promotes empowering women in Alberta's power industry. Women in Power is a community developed for women of all levels of experience who work in or with Alberta's power industry. It was established to provide opportunities for members to connect with, support, inspire, and recognize women to empower them to achieve their full potential both professionally and personally. Charlene, as a woman who's spent your entire career in energy, can you give us your background on how you got involved in the energy sector and the evolution of your career? For sure. I always say that uh, energy chose me. I didn't necessarily choose it. <laughs> I actually started. I finished my degree, um, my my undergrad, and I was thinking about going to law school. And a friend of mine was working in the HR department at Transalta, and she said, "Hey, we're looking for some summer students in the marketing department." would you like to come in and do some call like marketing calls right uh it was pretty funny so i took the summer job and 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 for unfortunately maybe fortunately i never went back uh, i didn't uh i didn't go back and do my law degree i stayed uh i stayed in uh transalta for many years in fact i didn't uh I don't know that I necessarily left there. Um, I was in, I was there from 93 until 2002 when they sold their transmission assets to Altalink. Mm -hmm. uh, I was on my first maternity leave, which I thought was very well-timed because I missed the first year of all the uh, ups and downs when they separated the company from Transalta, uh -huh. got in a year later when all the kinks had been worked out. So that was pretty good. Uh, but you know, back then I remember we, we sold $700 million worth of assets and I think 1,100 wow. clumps line right so imagine what it's worth now you know how yeah. much the, the evolution of the industry uh since then has been quite staggering so um i spent uh, a number of years there left my job at altalink to join the iso and that was at the time when the iso was redesigning their connection queue so i was really excited to be part of that process having worked on um the tfo side seeing where all the bumps and cracks were so spent some time there uh, working through that and getting to really know the connection process working with wind projects that's when all that sort of started to come uh, to fruition so that was really exciting to be able to see some of those first wind projects uh, get online the kettles wind farm for example which uh, was subsequently purchased by nmax but 
um, lots of fun out in the field, doing things like that. My, um, I was more, I did focus most of my career on uh, the legal side, on the contract side. So a lot of contract administration, uh, customer engagement, account management type roles. And then uh, I was lucky enough that one of my clients, when I was at the ISO, liked me so much, uh, he hired me into oil and gas. So oh, wow. Uh, and in fact, today would have been his birthday. He passed, unfortunately, to cancer but oh. um, a number of years ago, but he was a wonderful leader. And uh, he took uh, me into the oil and gas industry and showed me the ropes. And I spent four years there, uh, those in ill-timed, uh, right when the industry was sort of crashing in uh, the early 2011 to 15. So uh, I was left there. I was um, one of the chosen ones and uh, spent some time kind of pondering what I wanted to do with my life and decided, uh, I, you know, I think I should stay in oil and gas. Things weren't so great in energy. And we'll talk a bit about that, right? You know, there were a lot of challenges yeah. as one well in the energy uh, industry. I felt a little bit, you know, the numbers were more um, at parity in oil and gas. And I felt a little bit more, I was getting more respect. I was getting more opportunities. In fact, I had an opportunity at one point, uh, I tell this story, my boss came to my office um, and this was a different one. Um, Brian, unfortunately, had moved into another company and another gentleman was, you know, kind of um, looking, he was our vice president of commercial and um, we had talked about pay and, you know, things like that. And he uh, came to me one day with an envelope in his hand. He said, I need to talk to you. We need to go into this meeting room and we need to have a conversation. Actually, I was terrified. I thought I was going to lose my job. <laughs> and anyway, he said, I think you're going to want to sit down when you open this envelope. And I said, oh, man. Oh my gosh. So I sit down and I open the envelope and it was a $40,000 raise. Wow. Yeah. Good day. Really good day. Wow. Not at all what Here expecting. you were walking into that room thinking you were going to get let go and you got the significant yeah. raise. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, and this was about two years into, but he, you know, through conversation had, I mean, obviously found what I was getting paid and went like, there's, there's something wrong here. And so he took it to the HR department and he was one of those that was a real advocate for, for equal pay. So that was, you know, something that was really encouraging for me. And that became sort of my leverage, you know, later in my career, going back into the electricity industry. So, and where I kind of felt pigeonholed, you know, you got, you grow up in a field and I didn't, I wasn't an engineer specifically, so I didn't have a path to follow in terms of compensation. So yeah. Um, that was, you know, one of the, and, and just being part of groups in oil and gas that met on a regular basis to network. And we didn't have similar things in the energy industry unless it was a conference and you had to be, you know, a certain position in a certain company to be invited to a conference. So, um, love those opportunities, but couldn't find a job in oil and gas. So I did end up coming back into power and, uh, joined the balancing pool uh, at a very interesting time. In 2016, when uh, all of the power purchase agreements were being terminated by the buyers, oh, and yeah. no idea the kettle of hot water that I was getting myself into at the time, and I could write a book now, uh, like it would be an expose, I think, of the you know <laughs> the government in Alberta at the time. Crazy, crazy times, but um, but it was really interesting work. So I spent uh, sort of the last five years doing that uh, as part of a government agency and kind of learning the ropes there on the generation side. So I've had, um, you know, I look back in retrospect and I've, I've had a really good opportunity to be part of the entire industry, you know, an integrated utility, then the transmission assets piece, the operator, you know, the system operator and yeah. learning the ropes there and, and how everyone integrates with them. Then I became, you know, a project uh, proponent and uh, seeing sort of where things were on that side of things and then um, onto the generation side and, and the market side with the balancing pool. So um, my last jump was into more of the engineering side of things. So I did a, you know, did a foray there. And at, at this point I'm 
I'm uh, contemplating my next move, but I'm looking to do some consulting in the industry and just sort of getting my fingers wet in a number of different areas and and kind of going from there. But it's definitely been an interesting journey and, and Women in Power has the last couple of years been my passion project. And I know we're here today to talk about that. So um, I'll leave my, that's, that's my history there. I'll leave it at that and we can delve into the rest with further questions. Our next clip was taken from episode 70, Brock University. In this episode, Matt and Lisa talk with energy and environment professional, Mary Quintana. Mary is the director of asset management and utilities at Brock University. They dive deep in discussion about her vast experience in the energy industry, compliance with federal and provincial environmental regulations, green buildings, and all things carbon. You've been with uh, Brock for, I think, three, and then Western University for about eight years before that, right? Yes. So it's been a while. Um, probably if you include the research center, which was part of another university. So I've been in the sector for over 15 years in the post-secondary uh, education sector. And while we have our own challenges with uh, just some of the processes and guidelines that we have to abide to be fiscally responsible and everything. It also comes with great reward because it does feel that the vibrancy and students are willing to learn, they are willing to absorb what you have to offer. It just, it's very rewarding to know that we are making a difference. And the sector is so diverse, It's there are so many different facets to it. Again, in the beginning, it was research and development. Now it's more into the facilities management and asset management. So even within the same sector, there are so many avenues that make it very interesting. And also the portfolio that a university has, you can be talking to someone about art and um, a gallery and a space to keep it comfortable. And then you're talking about cogeneration with someone else. So it's so diverse that it's also very, very uh, interesting. Uh, talk to us about your work there and maybe start with your environmental sustainability plan. You launched it in, in 2018. Talk to us about that and, and kind of what you're focused on. And, and I'm sure there will be lots of threads that we can pull on as a result. So it has evolved. So we have the 2018 sustainability plan. And now we are uh, starting the work on the new one that we are going to release next year. Our current goals go to 2023. So now we're going to prepare new goals and a new plan for next year. So we have to start early. So that's one of the, the projects that I have going on right now. Uh, so far, we have been focusing on energy. It has been a, a big driver. Also, we have done a lot on waste management. Brock has one of the, uh, the highest diversion rates uh, on waste within the, the universities in the province. And we have more to do when, when it comes to some of the, the streams, when it comes to coffee cups, it's not that great. So we have um, mm. more work to do. And the same with energy, that has been a big focus, but I think that it's something that it's ingrained in Brock's culture. Um, back in 1992, and that was obviously before my days at Brock, um, leaders made a visionary decision of going with hot water. Uh, when they were building the plant and natural gas became available in the um, in the escarpment, they decided we're not going to install a steam plant. 
we are going to install a hot water plant with cogeneration. Uh, we're going to do reciprocating engines. We're not going to do the steam turbine. So at the moment, it didn't seem that way, but it was a visionary decision. There are not many district energy systems like ours across North America. Uh, many of our, our peers, and that's something that I, I know my, my colleagues in other universities are starting to work on. And then when I look at Brock, it's we've been hot water for many, many years now, for over two decades. So it was truly something visionary. And energy continues to be something very important for Brock. And that was demonstrated back in 2019 when we upgraded um, our cogeneration plant. We improved, uh, we got new engines, we got a new chiller, a new absorption chiller. So that has remained one of the biggest uh, areas that we focus for sustainability efforts not only because we appreciate what it does for us in terms of uh, cost containment, resilience and climate change adaptation, but also because it makes good business sense. It, it's just the, the right thing to do for, for the institution. So it, we continue investing on it because we have control over its operation. It's uh, also the largest source of carbon emissions for the institution. So it makes sense that we that we tackle it first, that we invest our time and resources on it. And that's something that we will continue doing. Um, the, the upgrades and the changes didn't stop with just changing the assets and modernizing the plant. It also continued with adding a SCADA system, which now we have this volume of data. We, we were using a commercial um, system for operating our plant and for collecting information. Now we have an industrial grade SCADA system. We use Ignition and we have developed a solution that's customized for Brock. It was not out of the box. It was completely developed uh, from scratch for Brock. And we continue developing it. We continue developing new sequences for the, the system. So we are, we are really just beginning to scratch the surface of what we can do. And um, something that you'll see in the, in the future, you'll see on the sustainability plan, far more emphasis on engagement on making sure that we participate with our community and the larger Niagara community on our initiatives. You'll see more of a campus as a living lab initiative. Um, Brock is working towards starting um, engineering programs, uh, more of a transi transdisciplinary approach. And we envision how, and as an engineer myself, I'm biased, of course, um, but how cool would it be to have the students do projects on the plant and to participate and to get access to the data. So that's something that we, we really want to do to have more of these projects and more of a, of a living experience for, for the students, not only for engineering and that's upcoming, but also for mathematics, computer science. We have many other um, departments that can benefit from that. So we really want to, to emphasize that on the next sustainability plan and of course to take our carbon and energy efficiency to the next level. On to our next clip taken from Energy Radio episode 71, The Rise of the Phoenix. In this episode, Lisa talks to co-host Matt Lensink about a new energy venture into solar thermal as a service. Phoenix Solar Thermal Inc. This unique technology consists of concentrating solar collectors that produced high temperatures, providing heat and steam to replace fossil fuels. Phoenix Solar Thermal Inc. is the official North American partner of Absolicon and an authorized distributor and manufacturer of Absolicon solar collectors. Thank you. 
So today I'm introducing you as our founder, as the founder of Phoenix Solar Thermal. And so I uh, would love for you to kind of maybe touch on, you know, what is Phoenix Solar Thermal and why did you decide to create this company? And, yeah, yeah. And talk a little bit about uh, about it as a starting point. Cool. So I think it, one of the, I, I mentioned in my origin story that some of the things I discovered as I went on that I didn't know as, as you know, a younger person was things like, you know, I was more, I had more of a bent towards business development on the commercial side than the technical side. And, and what I'm learning lately is, you know, part of that includes a bend towards, you know, being an entrepreneur. And um, and so always been having these crazy ideas roll through my mind and now, you know, having the ability to kind of um, give life to them is, is exciting. And so one of those, you know, so it's always, I'm always on the lookout for new opportunities and new ways we can serve our clients. And so, as I mentioned, you know, energy pricing is going up and, and the world is changing. You know, CEM, C in CEM is cogeneration, which traditionally has been from, you know, fossil-based fuels like natural gas. And and so somewhat, you know, in the last two years, kind of in addition to dealing with the pandemic, also wrestling with, okay, the world is changing, how do we adapt? And so as part of our transition as an organization, Martin, our founder, stayed on as a vice president of CO2 reduction, you know, leading, you know, being a leading ed edge of kind of new technologies. And so, you know, in and in and around his work, uncovering, you know, European technologies that, you know, can help us with this transition and, and more under the guise of how can we bring these technologies to to the world, uh, to our clients through our typical project delivery mode. Uh, but along that way, we discovered a company called Upsolicon out of Sweden who makes a parabolic trough uh, solar thermal technology and, you know, instantly kind of fell in love with the elegance of a solar-based technology uh, and, and, and had a unique business model, which kind of was a, a, allowed me to merge my entrepreneurial tendencies with my, you know, commercial understanding of the market with, you know, my technical interest to get into the bug dust. And so over this period of, you know, the back half of 2021, we we got to a point where, you know, we, we basically were um, the exclusive distribution and manufacturing partner for Absolicon in Canada. And we have uh, opportunity to distribute and manufacture for the U.S. as well. And so to, as part of that, we started a new company because it's a, a manufacturing business as opposed to a project delivery business. Right. And so the new company is called Phoenix Solar Thermal. <clears throat> and the, the focus is, you know, to get as much solar thermal as we can deployed primarily through industrial and institutional applications. Mm -hmm. uh, but it will be a um, it will be a manufacturing and a sales organization. The goal is to manufacture these panels, hopefully in the next 12 months here locally, ideally in the Niagara region. Um, and, you know, CEM and, and everything we do there will kind of augment that in kind of a vertical integration approach in terms of actually designing and delivering the projects. Right. Uh, but Phoenix Solar Thermal as a standalone entity is focused on getting as many solar thermal panels on roofs as we can and and why specifically the technology of 
solar thermal. Like when you think of all of the technologies that, for example, Martin as our VP of CO2 reduction is looking into, you know, carbon capture utilization storage and industrial heat pumps. And, you know, there was something obviously that kind of got intrigued you, I would guess, whether it was through Absolicon or whether it was just through some research that was conducted, you know, in, in terms of the solar thermal piece. Was there something that you kind of gravitated, that you gravitated yeah. towards uh, in terms of that technology? I think there's a couple of things. One, you know, one is is the the simplicity and the elegance of of solar as an energy source, right? At CEM, we have not traditionally gotten into solar PV, um, but it's a massive industry, and I think part of it is because it's easy for everybody to understand. You know, today outside it's a sunny day, uh, we feel the heat. We all have burned up uh, bugs through our magnifying glasses as kids on the driveway, um, and so we understand the energy there inherently, right? And and whereas you know, coming from 20 years of cogen or biogas or biomass, there's a whole bunch of layers, and, and I love it, and it's beautiful stuff. But it's it's harder to. There's more stakeholders. There's so that so there was an elegance and a simplicity to the technology. That was number one, and number two was was the the, the business model. This mm-hmm. this this focus on having domestic production. Uh, you know, we saw a business opportunity quite quite candidly. So, right. whereas you know some of the other technologies have you know they're coming out of well established companies that have well established supply chains, they have a role in the projects that we deliver, but they they there's not a missing piece around you know manufacturing and distribution. Whereas right. you know, this was an elegant technology. I think had they had distribution already, we still would have looked at it as a technology as CEM, and we still will as as one of the pieces of the puzzles. Uh, but we went that next step because there was a commercial business opportunity. And, you know, as, as I said, I'm an entrepreneur who knows, you know, there may be more, right, types yeah. of technologies. We've got to get this one going and, and working. But Are you already dreaming about the next uh, one? If I'm honest, I am, yes. yes. <laughs> Track, trace, and trade energy. In this episode of Energy Radio, episode 76, Matt Lensink talks to Dr. Gemma Green, co-founder and executive chairman of PowerLedger. PowerLedger is a software and technology company that is working towards making renewable energy work in a more stable way by having more responsive markets. PowerLedger aims to lead the global democratization of the energy market in a way where people have access to the energy they need, can participate directly in energy markets, and improve their lives and the lives of others. You were studying kind of how to do, you know, electricity on a kind of a small distributed, um, maybe microgrid kind of approach, but you were, and, and doing so in, in a multi-residential situation specifically, and, and you kind of hit up against this this problem of, of settlement that then blockchain become, became the technology that, to solve your problem, or am I oversimplifying it? Or? Uh- uh, it's 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 a bit more nuanced than that. Although that is a, a component of it, it's really about how do like if you and I are in, a, in an apartment building together, and I get allocated some of the solar and battery system uh, energy, and I'm not home to consume that, I can trade that with you and offset my electricity bill. And so it's a very fair system and a transparent system, and it's not awkward, you know, in that dinner party sense. So it tracks all of that and, and fairly allocates what you've consumed, what you haven't consumed but you could trade um, so that it encourages more uptake of renewables 
in apartments and condos. So that was really the concept for my doctorate. And in terms of the broader application and actually some of the first projects we did was demonstrating peer-to-peer trading of energy across the grid. And uh, so there's applications, I think, you know, across grid, within microgrids, and then also abstractions of energy like, you know, digital certificates. So renewable energy certificate represents one megawatt hour of renewable power. And companies and individuals can buy those to um, add to energy that they perhaps are procuring from a grid to be able to legally and validly say it's renewable and they retire that certificate against the volume of energy, one megawatt hour that they consume. Um, But there's quite a big sort of, I would say, very sort of fundamental shift happening in the way the accounting for that happens because companies have up till now been able to just annually match certificates in the country in which they operate. So, um, you know, if they're in America and they're operating in California, they might buy certificates from Texas or, uh, you know, in they're in New York and buy certificates in Texas. Um, and also they might be in New York in a December but buying certificates in January. So there's quite a lot of ways that they are able to do the accounting around this in an annual sense and a, just a national sense that don't necessarily reflect what the flows of energy look like on the grids right. in which they operate. And with small percentages of energy, renewable energy, it probably doesn't matter so much. But as these corporates and, you know, and citizens are starting to use larger volumes of energy, it's actually causing very significant problems in grids like oversupply of energy in Texas, for example, renewable energy in Texas and curtailment, um, you know, uh, like which is a fancy word for throwing energy away because there's no one to buy it, the actual energy, not just the certificate. Right. And, um, you know, the issue of oversupply of energy on a grid is sounds, it's just a simple sentence, but it can cause massive grid stability issues around voltage reactive power. And what that means is that uh, infrastructure like substations and transformers, the, the lifespan of those can be greatly reduced. And then you have to replace them sooner, which costs a lot of money, which everyone pays for. Right. So um, I think that there's a growing recognition of this issue. And that's why some of the corporate sustainability leaders like Google and Microsoft are now saying we're going to do 24-7 matching. So I'm going to match my certificate buying or my power purchase agreement buying in the market in which I operate at the time and place, you know, I operate. So if I'm in New York in January, I'm buying a certificate in January, not just January, but, you know, if it's on Wednesday at 7.30, that's where I'm getting the certificate from, energy generation that was originated there. Um, to try and actually put the price signals into grow renewables in the places in which they operate and not oversupply it elsewhere. And so I think that this um, this has um, this phenomena is is very nascent, um, and the targets that these companies have put around it, like you know, it's 2030. But it's starting to people are starting to grapple with what the significance of that is for for their portfolios and their you know that's real estate and energy consumption as well. Yeah. So talk to, so you, you talked a bit about kind of the origin of Power Ledger, but talk to us about kind of what's, what's the business doing now? Where do you fit? What, what services, products, you know, what are you uh, providing to this increasingly complicated electricity market? Yeah, so we make solutions for utilities and for large corporates. So 
we uh, make solutions for um, electricity suppliers or electricity retailers uh, and also the network operators. So this can be peer-to-peer -peer trading to locally deal with excess energy so that it doesn't create the congestion I mentioned before. Um, also to encourage the growth of renewables, but in a, in a way that's scalable without all the friction. Uh, and then we also support multinationals that have made, uh, you know, large companies and organisations that have made commitments around renewable energy to um, be able to track uh, their energy, to identify where they're at and procure things like um, energy from renewable sources um, or certificates to be able to match against what their commitments are. So that basically, yeah, we make sort of solutions for these utilities and corporates, like our presence, like at the moment in the US, we're working with the largest rec registry, MRETs, the Midwest Renewable Energy oh, Tracking yeah. yeah. We just launched a renewable energy certificate marketplace attached to that registry. And um, then in Europe, we're working with uh, several retailers developing solutions for their customers around the concepts of, you know, scaling renewables, um, choosing your energy mix, 24-7 renewable energy. Uh, and in Australia, we're doing uh, projects with um, grid operators to be able to um, help them grow renewables, but without those issues that, we, that I mentioned before. In Thailand, we're working with a large developer of renewables um, uh, all around, like, local energy markets. So we've got the largest commercial peer-to-peer -peer project in the world in Bangkok and okay. a project in Chiang Mai that's coming online as well. So, yeah, there's there's a diverse landscape of things, but they're all centred around, like, tracking energy and tracking derivatives of energy and tra tracking and trading energy, I would right. say. And, and, so you, and you're providing those solutions by providing an underlying software that, that, that facilitates this? Is that kind of... What's at the heart of what you bring to the solution? Yes, yes, exactly. So we make um, we make software for for these core customers that help them, you know, to be able to track and trade uh, each kilowatt hour and provide solutions to their customers as well. Okay. Um, so all supporting the scaling of renewables, but without the issues um, that are caused on the grid from very centralized planning of renewables. So if you look around the world in countries where they've got a high penetration of renewable energy. It's all been through centralised planning and what it's resulted in is like overbuild or too much energy, not where it's needed and when it's needed, which means you have to spend more on network and grid stabilisation. And ultimately what that all adds up to is higher electricity costs. So where you have the high penetration of variable renewable energy, you also have the highest electricity costs in the world. And this is a very bad outcome and has led to a lot of polarisation around you know, renewable energy and people will, you know, validly in my view say things like, you know, I don't want my electricity bills to go up if um, because of renewables or, um, you know, I, I don't want uh, industries to be offshored because the cost of energy is too high here to maintain those industries domestically. And so I think we need to have a conversation around how do we do renewables in a way that is sensible, uh, you know, rather than just applying the kind of centralised paradigm to growing renewables, which we can see is doesn't work and right. is really not sustainable. Hydrogen, what's the big deal? In Energy Radio episode 79, 
Matt Lensink and Lisa Katz talked to Samuel McDermott, technical manager of Hydrogen, and Clifford Crawford, Hydrogen Specialist at Enbridge Gas Distribution, about Hydrogen's current place in the energy market and where they believe it is headed. A special announcement regarding North America's first 100% hydrogen-capable CHP system, and they give some insight on the different ways they are exploring the use of hydrogen in the Enbridge business model. You know, let's talk about hydrogen and what's the big deal. Like, what is the big deal about hydrogen? Like, you guys are in the space and what's going on and what, what uh, you know, what do you think is happening and, and where's the uh, the future of hydrogen going? Yeah, you know, I, I, I know where you're going with this. You're thinking the smallest molecule, what's the big deal? Well, <laughs> it, is, it is a big deal. Um, hydrogen, if you look at a lot of the publication that you see out there right now, and almost every day something comes out on hydrogen, and the prediction is that hydrogen, if you look at the hydrogen council as an example, they are predicting that it can replace up to 15% of the world's energy with clean sources. But if we come closer to home, if you look at hydrogen, and let's let's break it, let's even drill down and renewable hydrogen or low carbon hydrogen, this can play a huge role in Ontario in, as, the, as the province tries to shift to a lower carbon um, system. And the other thing to this is what's really exciting is that this can be a made in Ontario energy solution. And what it does is it utilizes existing infrastructure, like it complements the wind and the solar, and it complements the electrical grid, and it ties it to the wire, to the pipeline. So it ties pipeline to wires. You can do large-scale storage with it. In it enables, it complements the grid at both both grids, and it's um it's a plus for the ratepayers and the co- the consumers as a whole. We call them ratepayers here at Ambridge, but it's the same thing. No, that's that's great. Thank you so much, Sam. I want I want to I want to unpack um kind of some of the the challenges of it, but first before we do that, I think you know this is I made the comment about what have you done for me lately. Um, and t- to be clear, you know, big Janet Jackson fan, but my father was a bit more conservative in his uh, in his listening uh, choices uh, back then. But anyways, um, you know, the what have you done for me lately is is a question that Enbridge can answer uh, and is doing it. So so maybe before we get into some of the challenges, let's talk about, you know, what you folks are doing uh, in Markham literally uh, today with respect to injecting or, or making hydrogen and, and, and what you're doing with it. And let's unpack that project a bit before we go further. Well, if you want to take a run at this. Sure. Well, I, I mean... We're already uh, utilizing hydrogen in Markham. Um, we, for one, have on-site generation in Markham. We have a power-to-gas facility that uh, has been in operation since 2018, um, producing hydrogen through electrolysis on-site. And we're utilizing that hydrogen in by means of blending with natural gas and injecting into the Enbridge pipeline system. Um, currently, this is a, a pilot project. Um, we're blending 2% hydrogen with uh, natural gas balance. And currently, um, about 3,600 homes are receiving this blended gas in this uh, isolated network in, the, in this pilot project. And, um, and yeah, uh, it's been 
in operation since for almost a year now, since October of uh, 2021, and uh, it's been it's been great so far. Yeah, we're you say we're we're actively blending and uh, and hopefully uh, we'll continue to to grow and and scale projects like this up from here. Cliff, a follow-up question as it relates to the blending, you know, is there, I would imagine there's a there's a follow-up process or there's a data collection exercise with respect to the blend and its impact on the distribution system, um, you know, and, and its impact on the appliances and on the consumers. Is that something you can tell us about even anecdotally in terms of how that's going? Has there been challenges? Is it working well? That kind of thing. Well, really, at this point um, in in this project, we've we've picked numbers that aren't going to have an impact when it comes to end users. Uh, the the first part of this project is is really just proving the fact that this this station and this technology can function and work correctly, but at a at a volumetric ratio that the the people in this network are not going to be affected or or it's going to be great enough for for any particular person to see or there or there to even be any challenges that are going to be associated with it at this point but once we once we have some time and some data under our belt that we're collecting over the last little while this is where um you know we plan on eventually being able to scale up these percentages and and scale up these networks and that's where where those particular um scenarios may become more more relevant where right now um, at this early stage of these projects, they're, they're not really an issue. Hmm. And, and Cliff, can you comment on like, like at what point does that actually become an issue? Like based on the blend percentage is, is cause presumably there's, you know, some mechanical, you know, part to that, but, but also as Matt was saying, like the appliances part, is it, is there a certain percentage in terms of that hydrogen that gets injected that, that it does become or could become problematic? Well, and, and there's a lot of variables there, right? Um, it, it, especially if you're just talking residential or commercial or industrial. Right. But, you know, you, you, you could go back and look at studies that, you know, you know, a lot of standard gas appliances can handle upwards to 10% blend without really being affected uh, negatively, but other appliances may have a, a higher threshold or a lower threshold, and all those things definitely, um, when when you get to a point where you want to choose a new number, if we if we get from the 2%, we want to go to the 5 or the 10%, all, all of those factors need to be reviewed and uh, and, and make sure that there, there isn't going to be any effects. But that's one of the, the challenges with the, the hydrogen um, with, with the hydrogen sort of transition and, and the energy transition is that when it comes to regulatory, when it comes to at what point does a natural gas system um, also become a hydro, not all of those things are fully written in stone yet, right? So as as regulations around hydrogen and, and gas system and, and the blending of which start to start to change and develop, those could come into play down the road. But right now, all, all of those things are, are things that are kind of happening in the background um, simultaneously while these pro pilot projects are taking places is developing those standards at the same time. 